When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Happy Friday, folks. It is uh, almost beer o'clock now, but let's nerd macro for a bit in the Real Vision Daily Briefing before we open the beer cans. My name is uh, Andreas Dino. I'm the host at Real Vision, and it is today the uh, 4th of October, and we're sending to you lives on the uh, heels of the monthly job report in the US. Another solid reading. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another solid reading this month, begging the question, what pivot from the Federal Reserve. And uh, with me to discuss uh, the week in uh, US macro, I've got a uh, macro heavyweighter, Peter Bukwa, the CIO of uh, Bleakly Advisory Group. Peter, uh, good to see you. How are you? Great to see you as well. Thanks for having me back. Peter, 261,000 jobs added in the US economy over the past month. What do you make of those numbers? Uh, about half of the beat relative to expectations was in government. Uh, I think if you look at uh, private sector, the beat was about 30,000. But there was a lot of mixed signals within the report. Uh, you had the birth death model, which is a, a function of the BLS where they estimate uh, new businesses subtracted by failed businesses or closed businesses. And it's important to look at it over uh, on a year over year basis. And this year, October, 2022 relative to October 2021, October 2020, even 2019, and it was about 100,000 more than those uh, those particular comparisons. So the number was definitely overstated. And then when you look at the household survey, we saw a, uh, a, a fall in jobs of about um, uh, or north of 300,000, and you add uh, that a small decline in the size of labor force and the unemployment rate went up uh, two-tenths to 3.7%. So, um, and you had a, a participation rate decline for 25 to 54-year-olds. So there was a lot of mixed picture, uh, mixed data within this picture. But I, I think that we have to start paying attention to the unemployment rate uh, because it rose for the wrong reasons. And uh, I expect that to continue in the months to come. But then that confirms, you know, the Fed's desire, desire to slow the rate of... Uh, rate increases and, uh, you know, sort of will we'll reach some sort of uh, match back, uh, you know, in, in 2023. If we pair this uh, job report with uh, the news that we got just recently uh, from JOLTS, the uh, job openings number uh, rebounding uh, in the latest data print uh, showing a, a new increase in, in job openings, how would you characterize uh, the current conditions within the uh, labor market and how do you think the Fed will assess them going forward? Well, the JOLTS data is, is, is dated, which was really for September. You know, I think when you, when you look at the, the labor market right now, you sort of have a, a, a two-sided labor market. You have uh, everything tech-related that's cutting payroll or at least no longer hiring, and then you have everything else. When I say everything else, I'm talking particularly the service sector where there's still demand for workers that need to be on site, whether that is a, a flight attendant, a pilot, 
uh, a busboy, uh, a, a waiter, a chef, uh, someone in, in healthcare, there's a desperate need for more nurses. If you need to physically be in the office or, or be on site at work in the services industry, there's still a lot of demand for you. I think in the aggregate, uh, I, th I think there's definitely uh, a, a rethink on the pace of hiring, even outside of tech, which we know they overhired over the past couple of years, and, and now are going to sort of normalize their uh, cost base relative to uh, the reality of, of where their revenue is. Uh, if you read through the uh, the ISM services and the uh, the S and P Global Services uh, reports this week, definite hesitancy. In, in terms of hiring. But that's the first step in an economic downturn. Then at some point you reach uh, a moment where companies start to fire and that'll be reflected in a rise in jobs claims, which at least right now remains somewhat muted. However, uh, it delayed in its reporting by two weeks, uh, we're seeing that we have seen a multi-month high now in continuing claims. So if you are on, uh, and if, you, if you file for initial, uh, it's taking you a bit longer to find a new job, and that's why continuing claims are going up. I think either way, we, we're, we're at an inflection point. The labor market is about to weaken from here on out with, I think, just the degree, uh, the main question. We've had a bunch of layoffs being announced in tech space over the past um, week or two. Seagate cutting 3,000 jobs, Stripe cutting 14% of the workforce, Twitter planning on cutting 3,700 jobs, etc. When do you expect this weakness in the tech sector to spill over to other sectors? Um, I mean, it's going to happen because when you think about the tech sector, the tech sector is a big user of other things. So if tech is going to do less business, for example, or they're trimming costs, well, maybe they're going to use, uh, well, let's take the people that they're, they're getting rid of. Well, those people are going to have to find new jobs, but maybe in the meantime, depending on their severance package, because a lot of these tech companies are going to give out pretty generous uh, severance packages. So there is going to be a, a period of time where it's not just going to be a fall from the economy because of those severance, severance packages. Uh, some of these workers are probably skilled, so they, they should be able to find some new jobs, even though it may take a little longer. But if their spending behavior starts to change, well, then that then uh, you know that that then has a rollover into services. They go out for dinner less, they travel less, um, and and their spending habits change. So it is a, a progression of things rather than just one thing immediately uh, impacting the other. But you know the dominoes might fall, but they're not just not going to fall in 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 um in this very symmetrical way. It's going to take time to knock some things down. The labor market is obviously of importance to the uh, Federal Reserve outlook as well. And um, since it's Friday, I wanted to sort of provide the audience with a, uh, a few takeaways uh, from the week within the Federal Reserve, because we've had a lot of messages from uh, the central bankers this week. Um, maybe a mixed bag of goodies. Uh, and I'm reading out aloud from uh, from one of your tweets this week, uh, Peter. Uh, you're basically quoting uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth, um, saying that while the statement released on Wednesdays after the conclusion of the FOMC meeting nodded to a slowing in the hiking campaign, Jerome Powell did his best to burn nearly every word in that statement to the ground. If you review the Fed in hindsight uh, this Friday, what's your takeaways? 
Well, I, I think it's important to take a step back and, and, and look at the situation as we went into the September meeting, just to give full context here. We went into the September meeting expecting two more 50 basis point increases. So after the third 75, there was a, an assumption that, that, the, that the one previous to the September meeting was the last 75, and we were going to start to get 50 uh, in, the, in the subsequent two. And then in that September meeting, we saw the dots. And the dots said, nah, we're going to do 125. We're going to take the Fed funds rate to a, to a median of 4.4. So all of a sudden, we had this shift to, okay, it'll be 75 and then 50. And then we had a hot CPI number. And then all of a sudden, the Fed funds futures started to price in 75 and 75. And then we had some, okay, let's cool it down. Uh, then the markets came back to 125, 75, and 50. But what Powell specifically did was he wanted to signal that this will probably be the last 75 and we're going to recalibrate it down to 50, but at the same time wanting to still talk tough. So that was the balancing act because he didn't want to sound dovish. I mean, he didn't want to sound going from 75 to 50 to be dovish. He wanted to be able to thread that needle of, of not thinking or not letting the market uh, think that he was going to um, back off from this inflation fight and basically saying it's not how fast we go from here, it's how high we go from here uh, in terms of the Fed funds rate. The destination still could be the same, but maybe the path from here starts to slow down, but the destination is still going to be the same. So I think that that's what he did, and I think he – he did it successfully because we saw the 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 hissy fit that the markets had uh, on the day of that of that meeting. Uh, but where he wants to end up from here on out will be dictated by the labor market from here, the inflation stats from here. But either way, we're getting to close to the end of this rate hiking cycle. I mean, they've gone from zero to four, and whether they go from four to five, we're, we're at the tail end here. Uh, but one other, there are two other points that he that he made that I thought was important. Number one, he said, "Well, if I hike, if I hike too much, and I overdo it, well, then I can just start cutting again." So I, I tweeted out, "Yeah, you can kill the patient, but he thinks his tools will somehow resuscitate them." Um, and 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 then he and then he made the point where even if I stop, rates are going to stay high for an, uh, for an extended period of time. And it's that sort of new landscape and environment that we are going to have to be accustomed to and that rates are not just going to start heading back down to zero again because the Fed hiked us into recession. They're going to remain elevated for a period of time. Even if they have, even if they have, they have to cut from, call it four and a half down to three and a half or three, we're not going back to zero for a very long time. Uh, and, and I think that that's a, a difference in this Fed's approach to the embarrassing situation they created themselves in presiding over very high inflation. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
I saw that uh, Evans from the Chicago Fed uh, also gave a few comments today, um, basically saying that uh, moving from 75 basis points to 50 basis points per meeting was not necessarily a big deal since they could just keep on delivering 50 basis points meeting after meeting expeditiously um, to, to cite Jay Powell. What do you make of that potential path? Well, th that, that's essentially what Powell said is that the, 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 the speed at which we're hiking is now less relevant than where we'll end up going anyway. Mm. So it, like I said, it, the destination still could end up being the same. It's just the path to get there may slow down a bit. And, and I think that was what um, Powell tried to uh, tell the markets and uh, before the market sort of got carried away with, okay, the Fed's almost done here. We had a, another central bank on stage this week, Bank of England, yesterday, uh, and they basically pushed back on the market pricing uh, of the future policy rate of, uh, of the Bank of England. Um, and Ben Broadbent from the Monetary Policy Committee uh, of Bank of England said afterwards that it's the market's job to follow us not us following them. Uh, I think that's a really interesting quote, but what do you make of that quote in the context of what the market is, is, is sort of trying to price in from the Fed right now? Well, I, I sort of agree. You know, there's a belief in the US that somehow the Fed follows the two-year, but it's really the Fed that, that has bullied the two-year. Uh, if the Fed said tomorrow we're done hiking, you'd see a sharp fall in the two-year yield. So I... You know, I hear like Gunlock and others, you know, saying that the, the, the two years should just set rates. But I think it's the central banks that bully short-term rates on where they want them to go. Uh, and so I, I, I can't disagree with, with, with him. I, I, I think what was interesting about what the Bank of England did by saying that was sort of similar to what the Bank of Canada now has done. They surprised us with a 50 basis point increase instead of 75. The Reserve Bank of Australia recalibrated down to 25 from 50. Uh, the, Nor the Norwegian Central Bank uh, raised 25 instead of the expectations are 50. Uh, even, the, the, even the ECB, which raised 75, you had a few members that, that were immediately out saying, and even Lagarde hinted at it, that maybe they're not going to continue to go on 75. So I, I, I think these other central bankers are certainly worried about the economic impact of these rate hikes and that they, they understand that they're hiking into a recession and they have to balance that. Now, of course, in Canada, Australia, in the UK, you have a lot of variable rate mortgages. So people are much more sensitive to changes in short-term interest rates, uh, you know, as opposed to the US that has uh, many more uh, fixed rate mortgages out 30 years instead of in the UK, two years. Uh, even though I read a stat the other day that 40% of homes in the UK are actually don't have a mortgage, uh, which I thought was interesting. So they're less sensitive than we think. But I, I think there's an acknowledgement that their economies are experiencing enough pain as it is. Let's go a bit easy on the rate hiking and have our fingers crossed and hope and pray that inflation will fall from here. Uh, and therefore, the slowdown strategy would be a good one. If we uh, look at this, basically this, this string of announcement from global central banks towards 
slower incremental rate hikes and then watch the price action in commodities, um, especially over the past 24 hours here. Do you think there's a link between slightly less aggressive monetary policy and the rally that we're seeing in, say, oil, gold, silver, etc.? I, I think there is, because I, I think when you look at the supply side in a lot of commodities, uh, I think a lot of people acknowledge that that it's crimped, that we've had many, many years of underinvestment. So if that if that's right, if that thesis is correct, that we have structurally less supply than we've had in the past, then really the marginal driver of price is that demand side. And if if central banks are going to tighten less, well, maybe that will be an incremental boost to the demand side, which then changes the marginal price upward. If you then throw in the possibility that China is coming to the end of this extreme uh, COVID approach, well, then that is another demand driver. So there's no question. And, and this is also in the context of commodity prices that have come off their highs. You know, oil was 130 on the invasion and, you know, trading near 80 um, within the last couple of weeks. Copper has come off their highs. Aluminum has come off their highs. Um, silver has been in, in, in the tank for a while. I know that's goes back and forth between being, you know, an industrial metal and monetary metal. But you know, we, we've seen a, a nice pullback in a lot of these industrial metals, obviously, because everyone's worried about a global recession and what that means for the demand side. So um, if you crush demand a bit less, yeah, you're going to get this uh, notable response. I wanted to get your take on uh, these ongoing rumors from China that uh, we will see a reopening of the economy post-COVID here. Um, we obviously had this series of tweets earlier this week with Hao Hong, one of the um, important Chinese economists, retweeting this rumor of a reopening committee being formed with the aim of reopening the economy by March next year. But you had a few interesting points when I spoke to you earlier um, around things that you could actually watch happening right now in China that could hint that this reopening is on its way. Well, I think I think that that March time frame and one of the reasons for it is because they want to get through the flu season also. They don't want to get whacked with flu and COVID at this point. So once you get to March and the flu season's basically over, I think they'll be more comfortable. But if you just read some of the tea leaves, you know, Hong Kong to me has been sort of a, a, a test tube for how China wants to eventually get off COVID. So in Hong Kong over the past month, we know that they got rid of their the zero, uh, they, they shifted to a zero you know, quarantine. Now, yes, if you are a uh, foreigner that comes into, the, into, the, into Hong Kong, you have to stay in your hotel for three days and you have to self-test, you can't go to bars and restaurants. Um, then after that, you can. Well, that, even though that's still a pain in the neck, that's still a change. Uh, the zero quarantine is still a change. Uh, they just had this financial conference and rugby tournament in Hong Kong. That's a change. Uh, yes, you had that the you know the the that tweet, but you also had a story overnight that uh, China was going to stop punishing airlines for carrying COVID patients. Uh, so that was a change. We're past the party Congress. I think that if you just look at and watch the videos of the the level of disgust and protests. Not formal protests, of course, you can't really do that in China, but uh, just the, the, the level of stress that this is creating. The, the stories, I was watching CNN International, and they were showing videos of, of two kids that died, non-COVID, but 
the, the parents wanted to take them to the hospital and they couldn't get there because of COVID restrictions on, on where they lived. So I, I think we're just, we're getting to such an extreme pace of, of, of restriction that um, it's going to come off. Then you had also uh, the news that they were going to start approving the BioNTech uh, vaccine for incoming um, passengers. So I think that is a change as well. So th there, there are bits and pieces of things that are leading to this reopening. Now, don't expect Xi Jinping to have a press conference and announce this. It's just not going to happen. It's going to happen with these little steps that's going to that's going to lead to uh, an eventual full reopening. So I think we, we really have to pay attention to the steps. Oh, I forgot to mention the news uh, with Macau uh, within the last couple of months that they were going to start allowing uh, group trips and, and e-visas. Um, that was another step in the direction of a fully reopening because that's the first time since COVID that they initiated this. So the, 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 the list of things pointing to a full reopening come um, spring is, is now building. And so I think that there's something real to this. If we look at the uh, market pricing right now in uh, commodity space, what, what are some of the things that you're going to uh, be on the watch for when assessing whether the market is sniffing this reopening story up? up? Well, I, I, you know, the one offset with China is obviously their real estate market. And regardless of the reopening or not, there's still going to be a lot of distress next year, which will impact the demand for steel and us iron ore and copper and so on. But still on the margin, if China reopens, that is good for the rest of Asia. If China reopens, that's good for the rest of Europe that does a lot of trade with, with, with China. So there, there are real um, broader implications of a, of, a, of a Chinese reopening. I mean, one of the major drivers before COVID of, of global consumer spending was the Chinese tourist was them traveling and spending money abroad. If all of a sudden, and we lost it, we've we the world completely lost the Chinese tourist over the past almost now three years. You get that back and that has uh, major implications for the demand for energy, for, for example, and jet fuel as they get on more planes. So again, in the context of the supply side that's crimped, you know, any incremental demand driver is gonna lead to higher prices. And what we've also seen is that higher prices in a variety of commodities historically would bring out more investment. But it is not this time because you have the, the, the at least in the US, the energy sector and also in Europe that's getting whacked with, well, if you're in Europe, windfall profits taxes and you get beaten up by every environmentalist. So high prices has not brought out more investment. Uh, you have you have in the copper space. You take Southern Copper, for example. I mean, they have environmentalists that are holding up some of their big projects. So here you have an incentive to invest in probably the most important industrial metal right now, outside of maybe lithium. That that there's not enough further investment because environmentalists are holding up projects. So that's why. Um, sorry to repeat myself, but the supply side is going to remain crypt crimped and anything that you can do to incrementally add to the demand side, you're going to see higher commodity prices. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I wanted to play a uh, soundbite for you uh, from a discussion I had with uh, the Swiss commodity expert, uh, Alexander Stachel, um, airing today at the Real Vision uh, platform uh, on the situation on natural gas in Europe and the spillovers to um, US. So let's listen to him and uh, get back to this discussion on commodities. And then you have the US, which has um, contracts, long-term and spot market, uh, where people participate in this, in call it the LNG spot market environment for, for US uh, cargos. And these guys are expanding as well now, but obviously they want to also make business here in Europe. And despite all the conspiracy theories and they want to control the energy, at the end of the day, it's very much about business, not so much about control. In my personal view, maybe that changes over, you know, a case can be made, but I wouldn't get too, too excited about these uh, uh, nice sounding stories, but usually not quite the way uh, reality pans out. So here is business to be made and Americans are good business people and they see it and they want to do it and they expand, but the expansion takes time. These are big infrastructure pro uh, um, um, projects. And so we expect Americans from everything we can read and see to be ready in 26, you know, 25 is 26, um, maybe 28 to accommodate another, say, 20, 30 BCMs. You know, American uh, LNG is important because it is what what is called, it has destination freedom, meaning uh, whoever owns the cargo can resell it. The entire interview with Alexander Stahl aired uh, today on the Real Vision uh, Daily platform for uh, Essential Plus and Pro subscribers. Uh, it's a must watch if you ask me, a part of our tremendous, uh, tremendous make or break series. But uh, Peter, I wanted to get your take on the sort of medium-term um, perspectives uh, for U.S. natural gas and, uh, in particular, liquid uh, natural gas. What do you make of that medium-term uh, story uh, for the U.S. Uh, natural gas sector? Well, I think it's inevitable when you look at over the next five to ten years that that there's going to be a global natural gas market instead of the very regionalized one that we have now. I mean, the U.S. is the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. We have a tremendous amount. The problem is, is that we, have, we don't have enough pipeline capacity, and we don't have an, enough LNG capacity for what the world needs. Uh, I read today that Sempra is uh, looking to build uh, a new LNG facility, export facility, on the Gulf Coast. But we still need more in pipelines. We need more pipelines in, in, in uh, the Northeast. Uh, we have the New England area that, because they don't have enough pipelines, they're now importing LNG uh, from outside the U.S. and having to pay up through the nose because they're competing with European and Asian buyers for that. So the utility bills in, in Boston, for example, are going to be through the roof this, uh, this winter. So I, I think that the, we've learned from Europe, we've learned from uh, what's gone on with Russia and Ukraine, that natural gas is a hugely important commodity. And even before that, the Europeans, and as we, we just joked, for, at least for now, temporarily, uh, understand that natural gas has to be part of their clean energy transition along with nuclear, uh, you still don't know whether the U.S. politicians understand the importance of, of natural gas because you still have some that uh, want to wipe that out as well. 
Um, but I, I, I'm long the natural gas space. I, I, I believe in the demand drivers. I acknowledge, though, that it's 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 still regionalized and that you could have extra drilling in the U.S. that could impact at least Henry Hub pricing relative to the rest of the world. But then you have, okay, you had Liz Truss that said, we are going to open up fracking because the U.K. has banned it, which gave some hope to the U.K. that maybe they would actually have some homegrown supply. And then what does uh, Sunak do within days of him being prime minister? Eh, we're going to go back. We're, we're going to ban fracking because um, we don't want to. We don't want to bother people, and we don't want to upset their backyards. Um, so now we're going to maintain our dependence on Norway and and, and other countries instead. Hmm. Absolutely spot on, Peter. Um, we have time for a couple of questions from the audience. Um, we have a question from uh, one of our members, Michael. Um, he's asking you, it seems like gold and silver uh, are rallying hard on dollar weakness, but do you think there is anything else driving the price action outside of this weak dollar? What I find really interesting, and, and this is coming from the perspective of someone who's being long and wrong over the mm. past couple of years in the metals, Silver has traded really well over the past month or two relative to gold. It still has been hovering less than you know, $20. If you look at the front month future, now it actually traded above $20 today, um, but has traded well. And all of a sudden, you, you have the, the possibility that, the, okay, now you have the Fed that is toning down the pace of increases. Again, they still may want to get to where they want to go, but they're slowing down. And the dollar has, uh, you see, I'm of the opinion, and let me backtrack for a second, that the, the main driver of the dollar strength has solely been interest rate differentials, the aggressive Fed relative to everybody else. And to me, what gives me evidence and confidence in thinking that is the two currencies that the dollar has not traded well against over the past couple of years has been the Mexican peso and the Brazilian real, because their central banks started hiking in early 2021. Now, if the dollar can't trade well against the Mexican peso and it's you know, socialist government, well, to me, that was a signal. Uh, and also the, you know, the political chaos going into this election in Brazil. So now that you have the Fed that's potentially slowing down its pace, you have the ECB that finally gets that they need to raise rates. The BOE, even though they were pulled kicking and screaming to 3%, they still hiked to 3%, and other central banks are now hiking. So to me, that interest rate differential story becomes less interesting. And today, with, of course, uh, the possibility that maybe the labor markets are going to about to deteriorate uh, from here, and that the unemployment rate, well, we just jumped two tenths. A few months of this, we're going to have a four-handle four on the unemployment rate. Uh, maybe that that also takes a leg out from under the dollar, and that the the gold rally and the silver rally, which is was pretty strong today, that this could be the beginning of something, and and may not just be a tease like I've been teased a lot over the last couple of years. We have another question from our member Oliver. Um, he's asking you whether you find anything attractive here uh, or whether we are stuck in sort of no man's land for a while. If I sum up what, you, what you've been saying so far uh, today, Peter, it sounds as if commodities, broadly speaking, look compelling here. Uh, they do. To me, it's still the most attractive part of the market. Uh, I also do think if you look at October, the October rally, pretty much everything, at least in the U.S., it was value that really led the markets. 
because of, of, of the, the, the crack in technology stocks and the crack in the fundamentals. And even with the pullback in a lot of these technology stocks, this is where a lot of money is still hiding. So the S&P value index rallied about 12% in October. The S&P growth index was only up about four and change. So to me, there's still there's a lot of cheap stuff out there of companies that do basic things that I think is where investors are going to make money over the next bunch of years. Not buying Apple, not buying Amazon, not buying Microsoft, not buying some software stock. Great companies, still bright uh, outlooks, but companies that need to spend the next bunch of years growing into their, their valuations. Uh, just as we saw after 2000, uh, just as we saw in, in other points of history, that if you're going to be owning the S&P 500 and you're going to still be a passive investor, well, that worked great over the last 10 years, and it's not going to work so great uh, over the coming 10 years. And you're going to have to start doing some actual analysis and stock picking as opposed to just blindly buying the S&P 500. Yeah, Peter, let me try and summarize for the audience out there. Um, first of all, in uh, relation to the Federal Reserve, I think it's fair to assume smaller incremental changes going forward. So the Fed will at least eventually join the other big central banks and sort of slowing uh, the pace of, of hiking. But if we come uh, to sort of, sort of the repercussions for markets, um, it seems as if the commodity space is still the most interesting space to watch uh, also due to this potential reopening of uh, of China come March next year. And um, to sum up your equity view, I'm tempted to say that you want to buy everything at the bottom layer of Maslow's hierarchy and sell everything at the top of the hierarchy of Maslow's um, hierarchy. Is that a fair um, uh, sort of summary of, of yeah, what you said? If, if it was that easy, if, yes. <laughs> I, I just want to add a couple of things, though, because yeah. if it, let's just say that the dollar has peaked. We'll see. We, we, we don't know, but let's just say. Well, there's, there, there's going to be an opportunity, in my opinion, in emerging market local currency bonds that are paying very generous yields that have central banks that have been as tight or tighter than the Fed, like Mexico and, and, and Brazil. And to me, if China opens up, you got a lot of opportunity in Japanese stocks, Indonesian stocks, Vietnamese stocks, Singapore stocks. There's a lot of opportunities if this happens outside of the U.S. to make money in equities because there are a lot of cheap stuff overseas as well and even in Europe. Europe has been left for dead, but if they can get through this winter, which it seems that they will, you know, we'll figure out next winter and, and, and gas and storage and so on. But China's Germany's biggest trading partner. If China opens up, that is good for Germany. And what's good for Germany could help the rest of that region. And I'm actually still, I'm actually very bullish from a valuation standpoint. I can't necessarily tell you catalyst wise, but there's a lot of cheap stuff, cheap stuff in the UK particularly the pound. Fair summary, Peter. Um, it was a pleasure to host you um, again this Friday afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll, um, I'll conclude today's show with a meme. Um, and I think it's fair uh, to use a meme on the Federal Reserve pivot because we're waiting and waiting and waiting for that pivot to happen. Um, so let's see whether we get the actual pivot next year. I think it's fair to assume that we won't get it this year at least. Um, I wish you all a great weekend. Thank you so much for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back with more next Monday.
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 